people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Fasten your seatbelt, please. We're about to land. And keep it fastened. For you are about to be jolted into a new realm of suspenseful terror. Who are you? What do you want? Your destination, a house on a lonely stretch of beach in France. Time, the night of the following day. grips the imagination. Nothing matches the excitement. Nothing builds in suspense. Like a good, hard-hitting crime movie. And here is one of the best. You wanna... Shut up! Listen to me, man. If you want to get freaky, you don't do it with her. The night of the following day, fear seeks a way out. This thing, man, you're crazy. You're gonna get us all killed. Brando, here's the old magic, the romantic star, the lean adventurer, hungry for excitement. Richard Boone, here and now, the living image of a sadistic killer. Don't let anything happen to my little girl. <laughs> day, love seeks a way out, and a kidnapped girl sees no way out. I got him on the line. On the line, but no one is off the hook. Look, this is going to be a one-way conversation. You listen. You understand? Just listen. All I've got is that little girl and old locking her. If I come back and I find that she's not all right, I'm going to take that burp gun and I'm going to jam it up your nose and I'm going to pull the trigger till it doesn't work anymore. As sure as night follows day, this startling motion picture will create a new must-see. A compelling must-know about what happens to all of these people in the different and daring crime thriller, The Night of the Following Day. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Adam Shartoff. Hi, Mike. It is so great to be back, Mike. It's great to have nothing but wonderful memories of my handful of appearances on the Projection Booth, and I'm just excited to be back on after all this time. Thank you for having me. Also joining us as a co-host, though he is once a guest, is Mr. Joseph Eisenberg. Hey, I'm very honored to be on here. I listen to the show all the time, and it's glad that people just want to hear me jabber. 
On this episode, we are going to be talking about the 1969 film The Night of the Following Day, uh, also known as Saturday, at least today it is, directed by Hubert Cornfield. The film is based on Lionel White's novel The Snatchers, where the kidnapping plot was so ingenious that some French criminals used it to abduct the heir to Peugeot. Ironically, the film would be moved from New York over to France and stars a lot of Americans like Marlon Brando, Richard Boone, and Rita Moreno. This episode was requested by our Patreon supporter, Vaughn Kohlmeyer. So if you're not Vaughn Kohlmeyer, or if you don't want this movie spoiled for you, please turn off the podcast and come back either after you've seen the movie or have become Vaughn Kohlmeyer. So Adam, when was the first time you saw The Night of the Following Day, and what did you think? This was my first time. I'd seen clips of it, like some documentaries. It was something that, film that I had been looking forward to seeing for a long time. But, you know, it's not a film that makes it onto one's radar too often. Otherwise, it's not really that well known in the Brando oeuvre. So this is my first time. Works for me as an oddity, as a curiosity in his career more than anything else. And it worked because it's just such a stunning movie to look at and because the people in it, the actors in it are just so great. And Joseph, how about yourself? This is the first time I saw it too. I come across it reading about Brando and I think I read Pauline Kill's really main review of it and saw it. And I had like basically had two reactions. I had my movie review action, which is, this is not a successful kidnapping movie and doesn't really work. And then also kind of like, Adam, it's like, it is really interesting to look at. And it's very distanced and strange. And if it had been done on purpose, I think that might be interesting. Well, I think some of it was done on purpose. Some of it feels very much like Cornfield is trying to inject some French New Wave type stuff into this. It's ironic because I was under the impression that this was Cornfield's first movie just because it feels that way. But then to look at his filmography, it's like, no, no, he'd been around the block. He had made some films noir beforehand, like proper plunder road, sudden danger, things that I was kind of familiar with. And then this comes out years later. Those were early sixties. This is 69. And it feels so sloppy sometimes. And I think a lot of that is because of him dealing with this very temperamental Brando. Brando, we've heard horror stories before, and it feels like this was just filled with horror stories. The commentary track the director did for in 2005, he revealed all kinds of terrible things that Brando did. I tried to sleep with your wife. And the fact that that guy didn't immediately dismiss him and fire him, even before that, really. He was already being a bot, even before it. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the financing was based on the casting of Brando. So there was no there was no firing Brando. There was only going to be firing, you know, the director, if anything. If the, but I'm just thinking, was this one of, do you think, an earlier project where he, since he had such control, Brando was already in a career slump? But but he still had an incredible amount of control, is my guess. And and my my assumption is that I was wondering rather if he had already got, uh, been exercising this control by not memorizing screen scripts. You know, he 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 insisted on getting the 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 ideas, the thrust of the scene, but he was going to improvise the dialogue. And I wonder 
is this maybe one of the first examples of this where he did that? You know, it had to be incredibly hard to work with. Who, who else did that you know, at the, back in 69? Right. Well, he was already not memorizing lines all the way back into his work with Ilya Kazan. You know, like the whole thing of him looking around in the back of the car when he's there with Rod Steiger is him looking for lines, like literally looking for lines. I don't think that they used cue cards on this. I think it was much more the try to get the gist of this across. There's one whole scene in here, which is probably one of the longer scenes and one of the longer dialogue scenes that was not even directed by Cornfield that Brando insisted that Richard Boone direct him. And that's the whole scene of, of Brando and the guy who is actually the ringleader of the group. And it takes me so long to figure out that he's the ringleader of the group. Just Han is, well, this is difficult because all of these character names are not character names. Uh, friendly is the character name, but that's not his, his name. I think it's Wally in the movie. The credits, they're all listed as like chauffeur, blonde, girl. Richard Boone is the only one that gets a name, and that's really more of um, what he does, which is Lear. Um, and I thought for sure that Richard Boone was the leader of the group from the way that the movie plays out only to find out, no, no, it's just Han. That is actually the one that's in charge of things, but he seems to be in charge of two, two things, which is Jack and shit. You know, but that happens on movie sets too, right, Mike? I mean, you know, you have the director, they're supposed to be in control, but as we know, a star like Brando, and I'm not sure that's the case here, you know, is actually the one who's running the game. So you may think you know, the director is, but in fact, it's not always the case, you know, so that it's a, the dynamic, you're right, is it just, it could be, um, you know, it could be anybody's guess who, on a project like that. And that scene you're talking about that Boone directed too, like, see, I was kind of confused by the movie from the beginning. So I, it wasn't so surprising to me when it turned out that I was the leader because I didn't really get entirely what was supposed to be going on for a while. But I was more confused by stuff they say in the meeting. Like when, um, what is his name? Brando starts talking about how he saw Boone smacking the crap out of Pamela Franklin and slamming her head against the wall. And you're like, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? You, we saw the whole scene. It has happened. I watched it happen. I saw it happen. Don't tell me it didn't happen. Thank you so much. Because, yeah, I, I was saying the exact same thing to myself to the point where I went back and rewatched that scene a few times just to be like, I'm not seeing what you said. You saw Marlon Brando. What is happening here? Well, according to one of the commentaries you gave us, they filled that scene first, the scene when the moon directed, and then later filmed the scene with Pamela Franklin on the stairs. And I guess he wasn't able to get all of that in it. And so they cut around it. And that's why it doesn't match up. There's so much stuff like this in that movie. It, it's a strange movie. This was a first time watch for me as well. I remembered when this movie came out on VHS and just from the cover image of the VHS, I almost rented it way back when I'm kind of glad I didn't, but I am glad that I've seen it now. I really, I can't say that I like this movie, but I, I appreciate it. I appreciate what he's trying to go for. He being cornfield in this one, the whole idea of the, the lack of dialogue and how much of this movie plays out like a silent film. I really like that. I like how much of this has no dialogue and I do like, and we talking about the ending, but I like the cyclical ending. It's kind of a neat little gimmick that they're doing in here, but 
yeah, some of it works for me and some of it doesn't work. I have watched this a few times over this week and there are things where I'm like, okay, yeah, this is pretty good. It's nice to see Richard Boone as a total shit heel, though he's, he starts off though so nice so that when he becomes a shit heel, it's like, was he always supposed to be this way? Or yeah, that that's one area of confusion for me where I was like, okay, it feels like Lear, the Richard Boone character is like the benevolent father of the group, but then it ends up, he's like the psycho other that comes into the group. Like that's also something that's revealed in that scene that we're talking about with, with Jess Han, but it's also a Stockholm is it doesn't really even matter if if your kidnapper, your abductor treats you very well or not, because eventually you just sort of succumb to this syndrome where you, you know, grow f- to trust or, you know, give over your control to this, this, the abductor. But here it is, seems like uh, his way of trying to, you know, mind effing, you know, mind fucking with the, with the, with her, with the girl, the young kidnap victim here. I don't know. I saw very quickly <laughs> that that he was up to something. But I wonder, like, there may have been so many ideas, like, for characters, like, you know, Richard Boone's maybe had a, this whole idea that he had worked out about his character. And then because of the way the film ends up kind of failing, there's a lot of confusing elements, in other words, that don't quite work out because I don't, I think it seemed as though they were in a rush to finish the film or, you know, who knows? But it seems like you know, they start off with all these best intentions with plans for how they're maybe the characters should be fleshed out like Richard Boone did. And then, you know, because I think of the instability on the set and that's our guess here, you know, things didn't necessarily always work out that way. Perhaps they were in a rush to get through the film. Who knows? Money was running out, you know. It felt like there were some contradictions in the audio commentaries. You've got the two commentaries on there, one with the director and one with Tim Lucas. And it sounded like Lucas was saying that Brando was a last minute addition and almost took over the role that Boone was supposed to play, that Boone maybe was the chauffeur. I don't know. That's how it sounded to me. And then Cornfield kind of contradicted that by saying, once Brando got on board, then we had a motion picture and then we went on from there. So it's like, which was it? Because there are times where it feels like maybe they swapped characters or something. But at the same time, it was always going to be Brando as the seducer-ish of the girl, even though apparently he cut the legs out from the whole production by refusing her advances in the scene where she comes on to him. Because she comes on to him, I think, twice maybe? But definitely for sure one time more towards the end. And he's just like, you don't have to do that. And just kind of cut the legs out from under the picture because suddenly it's like, no, she want, you know, there should have been a love affair. Pamela Franklin should have had more to do, but instead it becomes really more of him. Brando with Violet, the Rita Moreno character, which is fine. Cause I think they have a lot of chemistry and really for me, it's more their story than it is about the kidnapped girl. But, I mean, it is a problem that you have a movie about a kidnapped girl and you don't care at all about her. She's not developed as a character. You have, like, there's a scene, this reminded me of a film called The Collector by William Wyler. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but Samantha Egger gets kidnapped by creepy psycho Terrence Stamp so that he can treat her respectfully. 
<laughs> it's very strange. And there's a scene where he put gives her a bath and she takes the bath. And while she's taking the bath, a guy who lives like I guess like um the nearby property comes through and it's the suspenseful scene where you're like, you hope she'll get away, but it's also got that Hitchcocky thing of where you're slightly identified with Terrence Stamp and you're like, oh no, it's gonna ruin his weird out plan. And that scene happens exactly in this movie too, but you don't care. Like you're not worried for Pamela Franklin. You don't really care if it stops the kidnapping plot. It just happens. And you're like, oh, this is that scene that's supposed to be suspenseful. And the whole movie's like that. It's abstract. This is for that. This does that. But you don't feel any of it ever. Or I didn't. Yeah, it was very tough to feel for Pamela Franklin, even though she is supposed to be our main character. We start the movie with her and well, yeah, is it her dream? I mean, she's not the main character in her own dream. See, I was confused by the ending. I didn't know that that was supposed to be her waking up from a dream. Because normally the way they do it in movies is it's like they cut to a shot of them, like mid shot of them. And then they go and wake up, you know, so then, you know, it's a dream. But with her, it's just like it sort of flashes back. So I thought it was like a flashback for an ironic effect, like, oh, look how things seemed at the beginning kind of effect. Except for I was too dumb to realize exactly what the irony was. I know Cornfield on his commentary was saying that Brando wanted to change the ending, wanted to get away from that and have him have him end it with Brando sitting on the suitcase filled filled with money, filled with the ransom money, while Richard Boone, who has been shot multiple times, but apparently still lives, uh, (laughs) he pulls him out into the surf and the end of the movie was going to be Brando watching the surf carrying away Richard Boone's body. You know, allegedly he would probably drown at that point. That would have been an ending. And, but instead it was like, no, no, we can't do that. We have to robs the film of the surrealism, which Hornfield was really going for. And he's like, no, no, we can't do that. Also, at the same time, Cornfield was a little afraid of doing a kidnapping picture because when he originally started to do this, there was still a real taboo, which seems odd to me because I can't even remember when the Lindbergh kidnapping took place. But it was like, no, no, we can't make a kidnapping picture because of the Lindbergh case. I'm like, really? I had never heard that before. Thank goodness that's not going anymore. Otherwise, the Coen brothers would not have a career. I was like, had you heard of that? I've never even heard that was a thing. Maybe that's where the expression too soon came in. You know? Yeah, I think it was like in the 20s or something that kidnapping happened. Yeah, and this whole idea of we're going to age up the girl so it's not the Lindbergh baby, it's a young woman, and then also have, you know, like, oh, her sexual awakening kind of thing. But then we're going to add the, the twist ending to really distance ourselves from, oh, this really happened. I was like, okay, it feels like you're fated for this to happen. It doesn't feel like we're going to be able to do anything else other than this is always going to happen no matter what, because of that, that look on Brando's face at the very end, that, that creepy smile that he gives her, which again, the famous story of Brando wouldn't sit still for that scene. And they had to pull a frame from like an outtake and use that, which I love that that's a still frame at the end that takes us through the end credits. It's a little bit of a fuck you to Merlin Brando. I think. I know some of the shots of his wig seem to be also, I mean, apparently, so he had just shot, uh, flexions of the golden eye. Right. And he had a military haircut for that. So they 
but because of the timing of the production, he couldn't grow his hair back. So they gave him this blonde wig, which is, is it's kind of hard to watch. <laughs> Just him in this wig. I don't know if you had as visceral a re- reaction to the wig as I did, but it was painful to see him in that because he's beautiful. He had been on this health food kick, right? And he was in a fantastic condition, maybe the best condition of his life or since, you know, on the waterfront or what have you, or, uh, you know, streetcar. And, um, you know, and then this wig, it's just kind of, uh, I don't know. Am I obsessing too much about it? No, the wig is weird looking. Also, why is he dressed like a beatnik? I think it was to show off his physique that he was. Because there's even one point where he's wearing a turtle, black turtleneck. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And that line is like, if you want to get freaky with her, don't do it with her or whatever it was. That was funny. I wish this movie had been more Richard Lester-y almost. I think that would have helped it. <laughs> like, it's just bizarro edits into the future and into the back. Well, it was more, I think they were going for something more Jean-Pierre Melville than Richard Lester. Which is funny that I didn't know until I listened to that Cornfield commentary that Melville had a little bit of a hand in the production. And what was it? He's he stuck up for uh, Cornfield, I think, with the kidnapping thing. Like, they didn't want to have the kidnapping plot or something. And, yeah, he stepped in and helped out, which I was like, really? Okay. Maybe that's why they decided to make it a dream or or suggest it could be a dream. It was like a, a workaround in terms of the kidnapping. Yeah, that's what that Tim Lucas guy says. Is that what you said the commentator's name was? Yeah, he said that it was a, it was a way to, like, have all this bad stuff happen. And they go, it didn't really happen. Just for the record, Lindbergh kidnapping March 1st, 1932. So you're very close. I thought it was a lot later than than, than that, but nope, apparently not. I was thinking uh, the, the Lindbergh was a, was a, ended up being a fascist, right? So during the Nazi period. So didn't want America to get involved in World War II, et cetera. So the timing sounds about right, actually, 30s. The whole idea of moving the story from New York City or New York outskirts over to like the beaches of Normandy and everything, I thought it actually worked. It liked the idea of them being foreigners in this country and having that barrier for them that they they, they don't seem to have too much trouble with the language, especially Rita Moreno seems very fluent when it comes to French. But I have to say that Boone and Brando seem to be pretty darn good as well. But there is that whole thing of like Brando says in that, that scene that we keep talking about that they will cut your head off in a country like France or Belgium, or I guess this is France for this kidnapping. So there's even more than just going to prison on the line here. Viva la guillotine. Yeah. And I was thinking, were the French tougher about stuff like that than in America? I don't think so. Yeah, maybe they're they're super laid back about a lot of things, but not that one. I, I don't know. I talked about the kind of the artsiness of this. And the one thing that I really like about this film is that there's this theme of with the audio that we start off with Pamela Frankel, Franklin with her headphones on and Rita Moreno talking to her and Franklin not being able to hear her, but we can hear Moreno. And then later on, there's stuff like, there's a conversation I think that happens when they're switching limousines and things. There's a lot of obviously hands over mouth to keep the kidnapping victim quiet, but there are quite a few scenes of somebody talking and us not being able to hear it. And like, who can hear these things, which I really like that whole idea. I think it's like when Brando picks her up 
at the limousine. He's talking. You can tell he's talking, but we don't hear anything. So it's this kind of nice through line of this film as far as who can hear what, as far as like privileged information, I suppose. And I like that we're kind of kept on the outside as the viewers, because I'm trying to remember if all of the French is subtitled or if it's just French. I believe it was subtitled. You may be right though, Mike, because actually don't have a great grip on French, but it's pretty decent. And so I think I could have just understood what Rita Moreno was saying. And maybe I just remembered that there was subtitles, but you may be right. I don't think there was. Because there's a scene when Boone is in the cab and he's coming back and he can't seem to understand what the radio broadcast is saying. And the, the cab driver has to translate it for him. And then eventually the translate, the cab driver moves into English and starts to talk about, you know, these bastards and starts to tear down the kidnappers right to one of the kidnappers face. I do like to the audio use when it comes to the waves that we hear or the towards the beginning, when we get to the cabin that they're hit out in, you can hear the thunder in the distance, though it sounds a lot like cannons to me. So I was appreciating also the sound mix and I was listening to the movie in the car today and just hearing the waves crashing over and over again. I was like, that's, that's pretty nice that they kind of keep you on edge with the sound effects that are happening as well. Do we assume that everything was dubbed after too? Like the, in terms of audio, that the dialogue was dubbed after the fact. I'm not sure. They did that a lot in European films because, but, but and then because so, of some of the sound effects, like clattering of shoes on the on the floor, always feel a bit like they're getting their own microphone <laughs> or something. They're so they're so loud, and um, you know there seems to be such a a sound like an, a focus on that sound effect. I don't know. I was just wondering if maybe they redubbed the film after the fact. I'm not sure. For some reason, I don't think that Brando would come back and do that. Doesn't seem like he'd be a big ADR guy. You're probably right about that. Yeah. And then even talking about the sound a little bit more, I also like that sound is the connection between the girl and her father and that it's a tape that they have that they play to him. And then it's the phone conversation that they have. And I don't know when they first started to do the whole taping of the receiver to the uh, one receiver to another to throw off where the phone call is actually originating from. But I really like that, that they were doing that with the, the phones. That was kind of weird where it's like, I can't hear what you're saying, but you're going to listen to me because it was the way that it was taped. The, the mouthpiece was away from the, the earpiece at that point. I was like, really? You couldn't just like tape them together upside down with, why couldn't you do that? Jess Han? but so much for me, not a kidnapper. I don't know best practices. I didn't think about that. I like how the whole technology works. It looks really cool. That was considered pretty high tech at the time, I'm sure. Tape and two phones, look out. <laughs> and I was wondering if in that Peugeot kidnapping, the real kidnapping that the book inspired, I'm guessing there wasn't like, I didn't get all the way through the book. I read some of the book, but it seems so different than the movie and I stopped. So I'm guessing there wasn't like a, like an explosion used that way to divert all the emergency attention. I wouldn't think so. No. Yeah. Apparently their, their kidnapping came off without a hitch. But it wasn't until uh, months later when they 
got an anonymous tip about these two guys that were spending money like there was no tomorrow. Yeah, in the in the Alps or something. Yeah, yeah. You got to be careful, man. You know, it's like buying that fur coat after the Idlewise heist. You know, you can't do that. Take it back. Take it back. What did I say? Take it back. I was wondering if that was partly the reason they said it in France, along with the French New Wave kind of thing. But it, according to that Lucas guy, though, I think he said it was just because of the production company they used. And so they had to, for money reasons, it had to, and production reasons, it had to be there. Yeah, it could be. I mean, it's a beautiful location. The The beach is amazing. And that they use the beach so well, you know, using it at the climax of the film and then just having, like I said, those waves crashing all the time and just that sense of desolation. Like you could scream your lungs out if you want, girl, and there's nobody that's going to hear you. Yeah. And I feel like I've seen that avenue of plane trees they drive down in so many great new wave movies. When they're driving to the beach house, they go down this one avenue that's with the plane trees on either side. And I was like, I've seen that. I think that was them for our little which was uh, another movie inspired by Line of Light. Yeah, though I've read Obsession and then I've watched Peril de Fou and I'm like, no, not really. It's well, I said inspired, <laughs> right? It's as it's as inspired by that as Made in America is is inspired by the Richard Stark novel. It's not. And Lionel White's name never comes up in the credits, as far as I saw. Oh yeah, I don't think I paid attention to the credits. How bizarre! Like, like was there a writers' a union at the time? I don't know. You know, I don't know if that was necessary because there are a lot of times where I'll watch older films and then find out, oh, this was based on a book. Whereas now it's like based on the book by, or, you know, the, whatever credit it is much more prominent. Yeah. I was paying attention during the credits just because they were so odd. And the, the night of the following day title card that comes up title credit, it takes forever to fade out. I was like, oh, I've never seen it credit do that before just it was different timed than all of the other credits and then you kind of get those like double exposures overheard you get double exposures quite a few times in here there's that there's when brando and moreno are going at it which was interesting but then it was odd the way that that sequence stops with him at the typewriter and it's like too quick of a cut from him at the typewriter to Boone with the, the paper and pulling the paper out. I was just like, Oh, that, that really technically was not a very good cut at all right there. thought that that sort of edit was done because the way that you have the soup, the, the seduction of Marlon Brando, it pulls you out of that and reminds you that this is manipulation for this plot. Like walking out of a bedroom with your pants unbuckled. And it's like, when do you do that? Come on. Yes. Oh, Jesus. He was awakened by a scream, so. Yeah, that was just a little little too much of a bridge too far, where it's like, oh, he just so happens to fix his belt outside of this young girl's room, and Rita Moreno is not having any of it, and ends up with that amazing slap fight that they have. It's kind of due to her performance, you know, which was pretty straightforward it wasn't she wasn't she she i think gave a very just sturdy performance and it it is sort of it does hold the film together more than almost anybody else's performance you know you know her intentions you know her motivations in this film 
and she gives a solid performance. But I'm wondering, here's my theory, possibly, you know, they had this kind of mess of a film to put together and, and they thought, well, what if we make this a, you know, in a kind of a surreal experimental type of film and that'll be just sort of our cure-all for all the kind of, you know, problems that we have with the film, you know, performances, plot line issues, et cetera. This is like a way of dealing with that. And those kind of films were pretty popular coming out of the, the French Nouveau in the 60s. So maybe that's what we have here. Yeah, it could be like dream contradictions. It's like we didn't see that Boone guy slapping what's-her-name around, but that's okay because it's all dream, that kind of thing. Yeah, just the different POVs and... Yeah, it's it's dreamy too, and the drug use. I've never seen. Apparently, that was heroin that she was snorting. I I, uh, I was confused at first too. You're like, no, it was heroin. Yeah, really thought it was cocaine. I never remember that you can snort heroin as well. Which I guess she does just to trick them into thinking she's not using again. Right, because she doesn't have any needle marks. She's there to show her arms, and then she has to make up the lie about the sleeping pill. I think that Moreno really is the glue that holds this whole movie together. And if we had more of her, this would be a better film if it was more from her POV, but she never talks to the girl. She'll talk around the girl. I don't know if she even has one line to the girl. Yeah. There's that weird reaction yeah. that she has when Boone steps on Pamela Franklin's toe and that interesting edit. And, uh, you can tell from the looks that she exchanged over Boone that she knows he did it on purpose to hurt her and is even slightly amused by it. And she doesn't seem to have any opinions about stuff. It's not like we've got Brando, like, yeah, this caper's over. No, like, I'm not going to deal with this psychopath that you brought on. Blah, blah, blah. And she just seems to be going along with it. I mean, she definitely is angry at Brando for quote unquote sleeping with the girl, though he didn't at that point. And really, I love the whole stuff of her with the fisherman slash policeman. I think that those moments are some of the best moments, especially when the policeman helps her fix her windshield wipers and gets out into the pouring rain to fix her windshield wipers. That moment for me is like, oh, wow. He, it feels like he's very Columbo. It feels like he knows what's going on from the very beginning. I don't know how much of that is true or not, but it feels like he's just doing this like, I'm going to debase myself by getting out of this car and getting soaked and fixing your windshield wipers just so you think that I'm this harmless dolt of a policeman, but I really have my eye on you. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's another movie going on somewhere in there in that in that film, right? There's this whole potentially really strong and traditional movie. Maybe, you know, I think those that do like this film like it because it's not traditional, but I think the three of us are sort of like wishing we could see a more traditional approach to this film. I mean, you have like, you know, Rita Moreno, and she really is uh, dynamic, charismatic. She's fantastic. She's coming out of sort of a, also a, I don't want, I guess a sl self-imposed slump, right? After West Side Story, she's hoping to hit more mainstream Hollywood or be cast more mainstream in Hollywood, and they, of course, it's Hollywood, so she's being offered nothing but pretty stereotypical Latina roles, nothing very exciting for her, and so she sort of semi-gets married and, and leaves Hollywood for all intents and purposes until, of course, 
Brando. <laughs> just the picture. And I think he could have gotten just about anyone to uh, come out of retirement to be in a movie with him. After they had a long history together, they were like involved for several years, even when he would get married and divorced. And then he made her have an abortion and then she nearly killed herself. And that was it between them for a long time until he called her up to be in this movie. And one of the good things about Brando is he made sure not only that she got the part because he thought she should be acting again, but he also made sure that she got paid well because they wanted to give her nothing. And he was apparently, that was one of the great things about him. Like when he would be in movies, he would really fight for the people of color and lower people to get good salaries and not be paid in the chancy way they would pay people of color. So that was cool. And women, I mean, she had everything going against her. Yeah, he knocked her up. She ended up having to have an abortion or had an abortion. Well, he pressured her into it. I think this was a few years before. Yeah, yeah, I think it was more like 1950s, like early parts of both of their careers. Yeah, somewhere around 1960, I think, is where I gathered the abortion took place. Her first credited role is 1950, which is wild to think that she had already worked for 10 years before West Side Story. And she was singing in the rain. And she's still acting. Exactly. And she's made so many movies over and TV shows over the last 10 years would put any other actress to shame. It's, it's wild. One thing I wanted to bring up about her performance when you were talking before, Mike, in the scenes with the cop, a lot of that stuff really reminded me. And the way, actually the way Adam had mentioned how she has this very like worked out, very precise sort of performance that she gives. And it reminded me a lot of the kind of work that Janet Lee did in Psycho with the cop and same sort of like cool professional, like, exterior with the kind of desperation and panic underneath it and Rita Rina really brings that out it, like Adam's saying it's much stronger every time she's on the screen you feel like you know it's going somewhere and that she's taking you somewhere well there's that incredible moment when the cop is talking with her and she's in the car and yeah I totally see what you're talking about as far as like the Janet Lee and the cop with the uh, mirrored sunglasses that that is uh questioning her after she slept there and she does this thing where she suddenly becomes really sad and starts to cry and talk about how you know because the the cop thinks that brando is her boyfriend or lover like because he thinks that boone is her husband and so she starts to cry and then, you know, she switches from that into another emotion. And you just see all of these things play out. It only takes less than a minute for this scene to run. And you just see all of these different things that she's doing, trying to manipulate the cop, manipulate, you know, the audience basically. And it was just like, wow, this is fantastic. She is just doing such a great job. Yeah. The only thing that I that was disappointing was, like you said, since she doesn't have interactions with Pamela Franklin and you don't even... Maybe because of like a traditional sort of idea about gender. It's like you keep looking to her thinking she'll be sympathetic to Pamela Franklin and that, that will pull you to her. So she'll be the one kidnapper that you can kind of identify with. But the movie keeps wanting to identify with Brando and he's just, he doesn't feel consistent enough for you to know what he's doing. Like even in the whole, that weird scene, like you're talking about that leads up to it, he's got to get back to the house within an hour to keep Boone from you know, doing his thing, which frankly, I think by that point, he should have known Boone was just going to do his thing. <laughs> and that there's not this hour limit is Kelsey Pree's criminal doesn't stick to his word. 
I'm telling you, Rita Rita Moreno is in some other movie. <laughs> Gee, there's there's two movies going on here at the same time. That's that's its its flaw, but it it's still very compelling. I don't. Did you find it still with all these flaws we're talking about? I still feel like totally compelled. I can't take you can't take your eyes off Brando. You know, he. I think there is one or two moments where he hands it up, but he's still. You gotta get us all killed. Yes, yeah, the exact scene was a little bit yikes. Yeah, no, I, I do find it compelling. Even like we're talking about, is it technical mistakes or is it French New Wave? <laughs> Which could be the the title of a podcast just dedicated to Jean-Luc Godard. There are moments in this movie that are out of focus and they seem to be out of focus, not on purpose. It feels like they just... What the driving stuff. Yeah, it feels like they just didn't have their shit together. There's a lot of parts in... The, I think in that conversation with with and Brando that we keep going back to. Well, I wonder how many days they had on this show. Do you know, Mike? Uh, I don't think that many, but I don't know how many they had. Yeah. Clearly, clearly they did not have enough money. The director said how many was it? it was something like 30 something days, I think, that they had to do it. And they've got a lot of setups in this. I mean, there are so many times I'm very curious the order that they shot these things, because we should say to the audience that there are many times where it's like, okay, now you're following Rita Moreno's story. Now you're following Marlon Brando's story. Now you're following Richard Boone's story. And occasionally Jess Han will show up in each of these. He really doesn't seem to have a story of his own, even though he's got that little line where he's just like, Hey, I've been doing this for all these years. And it almost seems like he's very fatalistic and that he knows he's going to get caught instead of killed. Like he ends up getting, but he's like, you know, at the end of the day, don't you wish you just had enough money for car fare? And it's like, okay, yeah, you're really aiming low. Like you should be thinking this is going to be a much more successful operation. But, but anyway, always cutting back and forth between all of these stories. And sometimes they will run for a long time. Like there's a whole thing where, she sees Rita Moreno sees Brando coming out of the bedroom where the girl was and then fixing his pants. And then he goes down and he has a conversation with, with Han and that takes a long time. And then when he comes back up, she's angry. And I was like, what is she angry about? What is, Oh yeah. She saw it. That was a while ago that that happened. <laughs> it does seem like that in a real emotional thing, she just would have immediately went out and confronted him with it. But that would, Screw, I guess, with the story stuff where Brando's maybe going to pull out and then doesn't, and so then has the emotional backing he needs to manipulate Rita Moreno the way that he does. Because it's also weird too how she's just packing and she's going to leave, and you're like, all these people can't abandon in the middle of a kidnapping. I didn't realize that the night of the following day means the title comes from that this whole caper is two days because it feels like this has gone on for like 10, 12, 15 days. <laughs> it does kind of I hadn't thought about that but yeah the scene where uh, we were just about to describe where you know where he does walk back into the room with Rita Moreno and she lets out but he finally has this opportunity this gift to take out her anger at Brando and she just you know wallops him and and then I don't know if she knew he was going to hit her back even but he caught, catches her off guard I went through the memoir and read the entire description of her relationship with Brando and the making of the film. It's good, by the way. It's everyone should read her memoir. It's very sassy and well written. 
Right, but it's certainly it's sassy. Yeah, there's about a thousand books on Marlon Brando, and most of them don't even give this one more than a paragraph. And if they do, it's not very nice what they say about it. I've looked at two different ones. One had like a, a few pages on it in the production, and mostly it blamed the director, which I didn't think was fair. I think Brando, if he's a professional, should do the job he was handed and not rewrite the script halfway through, even if he thinks it's crap. He should do what he's supposed to do, and then he, he can bitch about it later. On a personal level, I feel like, yeah, I agree with you. But on a business level, or you know, I feel like, you know, that the director couldn't pull it together. You know, he did not have control over this film. It's what it feels like. And, and I do feel like ultimately it, it has to, you know, rest on his shoulder, uh, shoulders, you know. And so I don't know. I'm a little torn about it that i kind of feel like brando is brando you can't cast brando and not expect to get brando i mean i guess if i'd heard stories about him i would agree i was i didn't know he would go this far and doing stuff like trying to sleep with your wife and throwing it in your face like that seemed a little extreme there yeah i mean i guess i'm myself might not be too professional at that point let me write this down next time i'm working on a film set no trying to seduce the director's wife but you're right. The director wasn't able to control him and he couldn't fire him. And so he ate it. And that's probably the worst. That's the worst part of it is the ate it. He should have figured out a way to, to probably John Houston his ass or something, but it would require a lot of testosterone. I think <laughs> the, the problem. Yeah. And the problem is, yeah, he's not John Houston. <laughs> True. I didn't mean to make a qualitative comparison between the two. I just, no, no, it's good. I'm glad you did because, you know, you look at somebody like John Houston who figured out how he, you know, who worked with some of the uh, the biggest egos and greatest actors of, of the day, you know, and managed to almost never make anything that failed. Yeah, and usually they would come out respect. I think, like, John Houston was the only director in that period that Brando liked. And uh, to be honest, I'll be honest, I prefer this movie to Reflections in a Golden Eye, which I think is hysterical and very unpleasant to watch film <laughs> i remember liking it when i saw it though it definitely felt strange and felt very very strange it, yeah and i watched it that gold version yes same here and it's like i didn't like the gold yeah it was it was a choice it definitely was a choice i mean i can see that brando's doing more acting in that film consistent with what's going on than whatever he's doing in night but I don't know. Also, I really love Pamela Franklin. That was one thing too I was annoyed with is that I was hoping to get a really good Pamela Franklin movie, and she just doesn't matter. I'm surprised that Richard Boone wasn't the problem because Boone was infamous for drinking. I know by the time he was making Winter Kills, it was very tough to get a performance out of him, which I know is still, it's probably like seven years later. He was fired off that or his last all right. Wasn't that what I think I read? I think you're right. I have talked more about Richard Boone over the last three years than I ever thought I would because he ended up getting a lot of work from Rankin and Bass, and I do a podcast on Rankin and Bass, so he was in the Bushido Blade, he was the voice of Smaug in The Hobbit, he was in an amazing film which I cannot recommend enough called The Last Dinosaur, where he played a character named Mastin Thrust Jr., Mast and Thrust. I think I saw it when I was like, Chad. Yes, Mast and Thrust Jr. And spoiler alert, he's actually the last dinosaur. He has like a great 
great craggy alcoholic character actor's face. That's for sure. Rita Moreno would go on to work with him again in Heck Ramsey, if memory serves. So this was a few years before he was on that TV wheel with Columbo and Banachek and those guys doing Heck Ramsey. He was one of the the first ones, but unfortunately it was only 10 episodes. That's probably where he's most familiar to me from. The one thing I, one thing I liked a lot that was disorienting and dreamy was at the end when Brando basically gets out of, you know, he wants them to drive up to the house without him so that Boone will not get them. And then of course he just kills them, which I loved that, by the way, that just was so disorientingly funny and pointless and end the Rita Moreno's thing. And then when he chases down Richard Boone, you assume he's behind Richard Boone when he shoots him. And then he's really at the water's edge in front of him. And I was like, that was really weird. <laughs> That's probably my favorite thing like that in the movie. Apparently, Cornfield was very into making Richard Boone look like a Magritte painting as he's walking across the beach and he's got the bowler hat and the umbrella and he just looks like this very out of place character and he was like oh yeah i was really going for magritte with this so i was like okay that's that's kind of cool and you're like and you're doing that because why i was really shocked when speaking of opening credits when al lettieri's name came up oh we can't leave out al lettieri yeah, that was. I was so surprised to see that. And then when he shows up in the movie, I was like, "Holy shit, this is great!" The Godfather connection, like like the music thing, that sounds sort of like the Godfather. Oh yeah, I couldn't get over that music. <laughs> the music has this motif that sounds like it's going to break right into the Godfather theme, but it gets what four or five notes in and then takes a turn. But every time it played, I was just like, "Oh, the Godfather!" Nope, no, it's not the Godfather. Me too. I'm glad that you heard that. Because I was like, maybe I'm crazy. I don't know how Al Terry got producer credit on this film, but it may have been their collaboration between Al and Brando. May, maybe that is how he ended up, Al end up, ends up playing Saluzzo in uh, The Godfather years, some years later. I wouldn't be surprised if that was something. I'm not sure. I wish that there was a really good uh, biography of Al Lettieri because he seems like a very fascinating guy because I've seen him. But it would be a short one, sadly. Yeah, what, he died when he was, what, 46 or something? 46, 47 of alcoholism, yeah. Because wherever he shows up, it's always interesting. Like I, I really like him in Mr. Majestic when he's in The Getaway. I mean, he's, he's terrific. He had a very small amount of roles, but they were all very powerful. And yeah, it looks like he looks like he definitely knew Brando around this time. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was the, the connection that got him the role. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he would play heavies, but usually heavies with just a little bit more going on, more dimension to the character, you know, whether it was humor or intelligence, he was a good actor. He's just not going to deliver uh, a one-dimensional, you know, performance. But he had a very small role in this as the pilot, and uh, yeah, that confused me too when he gets killed. I guess with the karate chops. Yeah, with the karate chops, <laughs> like the old and loving it, chief. Hiya! Just right, knocked him right out. And I guess that means that like Boone was working with some other people that we never saw. I think he was just going out on his own. I think he decided. But there's people flashing in the light. Who's that? Oh, good point. 
I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he's got to have some way. I'll tell you who they were. They were future dead people. <laughs> they were going to be. <laughs> they weren't going to make it back to the shore. <laughs> Trust me. Whoever was in the boat out there waiting for him. Right, that's what I was thinking. He must have had a whole separate plot to betray them that was going on that we never learned about. Him being killed by Brando before making it to the boat was the luckiest thing that, yeah, whoever was on the, in that boat was able to survive, but they probably wouldn't be. Because I think he was trying to, like, right, erase all of the tracks. He knew what all of their moves were and was able to then play that against all of them and try to, you know, that and have his fun with the girl. And that, to me, I think it's really effective that they don't show us exactly what happened to the girl and that they don't show us too much of her that uh, you get to see some like looks like red marks on her back and i'm like are those cigarette burns you know that he tortured the shit out of her probably raped her and yeah it's good that we didn't see that but on the other hand you're like well that was another failed opportunity to get us involved with family and on franklin even if they did like quick flashes of some of the damage and you don't really know exactly where it's at just to show us that there was more going on. But I think we have in the theater of our heads that what he did was not good at all. Mm -hmm. Oh, and did you notice too, like this is relating to that guy Boone and how he did the first aggressive acts to Pamela Franklin when he stepped on her foot while she was eating and you notice that Jess Han uses that same move on the guy at the cafe. And I was wondering, so is that a thing that they do? Right. Yeah. That's our, that's our signature move. <laughs> Cause he, he stepped on whose foot was that he stepped on at the cafe. I can't remember. And I noticed you pointed out a similar, when you wrote about this to me, when a similar confusion I had, did the father die or not? Right. Yeah. I don't really know if he did or not. Cause that whole, when, things go tits up as they say it was just a mess <laughs> and like okay what just happened here i was very sad when jacques Marin died in the film because i always appreciate seeing him show up and when he did i was just like oh hey he's one of these great familiar faces that you've seen a thousand times and i mostly remember him from herbie goes to monte carlo when i was growing up because i saw that movie probably a thousand times yeah, that was funny. That was another very forced complication at the cafe when he is like pulls out his gun and then a bunch of shooting. Although I did like it, but it just killed everybody. That seemed fun. Seems sort of a Tarantino thing to do. I was reminded of the Big Lebowski while I was watching this film because of Brando's line about how he's going to stick that burp gun up uh, Richard Boone's nose and pull the trigger. And I was just like, let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash your piece out on the lanes, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. It's a neo-noir, and it's very much a noir book that it's based on, hard-boiled book that it's based on, and this whole thing. And, and I found it interesting that the guy who wrote the intro to the book, Rich Olderman, his definition of film noir is is the definition that I have become used to, though he makes it nicer. The mind is always, you start off the story fucked and you end up more fucked at the end. And that's totally this. These people are not in a good spot at the beginning of the movie and they are dead 
<laughs> by the end of it, or, you know, I don't know what, what Brando's going to do after this, but that girl's going to need a lot of therapy. Yeah, that was a, a nice twist. I actually would agree that Brando's version of the ending would be interesting because unlike most of the films like The Killing or something, it's like where the money is ironically lost or like the treasure of the Sierra Madre, that sort of thing. It'd be interesting if everyone's dead, but the last guy standing and he has all the money. Like, that's an interesting idea. He's got the money. He's got the girl. He's got the power. And all the rivals are gone. And he's got the wig. Oh, and you know, we didn't mention because we you started... Uh, Mikey started off talking about the different characters, the fact that they're, you know, known in the credits as these very just almost, how would you describe the most generic, right? Titles. Like archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. Archetypes. So, but he's called Bud at certain points, right? Which is his, Marlon Brothers' actual real life nickname. Like his friends called him Bud. And I, it's just, it may be. There might be something a bit, I don't know, sort of telling about that, that, that he goes by that name in the film, but talk about like the, just the power struggle there. Yeah. I mean, since he was kind of buddies with like Boone and probably some of the other people. Oh yeah. And of course, Rita. Yeah. Uh, and then he has that other, I don't know if they were buddies, but they have, yeah. Then he has that real name he has that Boone calls him and you're like, what the Lock and far. Lock and far. That's right. And I'm like, that's interesting. Is that is, I guess that would be the real name that he goes by. Tim Lucas was like, we've never heard this before. And it's a whole new surprise for us to hear it. Right. But he called him that twice. So Tim shouldn't have been too surprised. Tim needed a little help with his commentary. He needs to know what diegetic versus non-diegetic music means. That's right. I noticed that. He also needs to know that Rita Moreno was at Electric Company, not Sesame Street. So... I did catch that one. He also claimed that, the, by the way, you talked about how they were named like the chauffeur and blah, blah, blah. And the credits, he talked about how that came from a, a, a French type of novel, the new novel, Elaine Robray and people like that wrote. But I was thinking that that went back to German expressionism, where where they would call them just like the man, the girl, the kind of thing that Kafka had been influenced by. And there's something not exactly kafka about the movie, but like distanced like him. But I do like I do like that aspect of the movie. Like I'm I'm bitching about it, but I did enjoy this movie. I totally enjoyed it as well. I wouldn't have watched it, you know, multiple times and listened to all the commentaries and all that had I not enjoyed it. A lot of it was why is this the way that it is? You know, I'm always fascinated by the making of movies. How did this how did we end up with this? Would have been, you know, the original version, what happened here and there. What was the whole production history? You get a little bit of that from this stuff and from all the materials, but it's still a mystery. It's tight. It, I mean, it's taut. It's short. I mean, compared to, you know, a lot of movies of the time. And, you know, it's unpredictable. You do not know what's going to happen any from scene to scene, moment to moment, which, you know, is also a criticism of it. Except for the cop, you know he's going to die. The second I saw him, I was like, he's going to get it. I thought that he might have foiled their whole thing because he does seem smarter than they are. And he does seem to always be where they're at. You know, and she even says, like, this is not a coincidence. He was here. He was here. He was here. It's like, yeah, no, I don't think it is a coincidence, Rita. I think that. But he's flirting with her, see? And the flirting thing, when he thinks she's married, he's getting it. And I think the filmmakers, you know, the director, Brando, probably a number of the other, I mean, anybody who was in the actor studio 
they all spoke French and they were all fans of French films. We know that. So I'm sure they were trying to pull something off. Peut-être. Peut-être. One thing that Lucas said that I found interesting was that originally they were thinking they were going to make this movie in two languages, that it would be English and French since they could all speak French. But that's the, I could not find anything to back that one up. And Cornfield didn't mention that whatsoever either. It would have been kind of neat. Turns out it's all Greek. I kept thinking while I was watching this movie, I kept thinking of another film called And Hope to Die, which ironically is based on a David Goodis novel. It came out a few years after this. It came out in 1972. I want to say it's also in France and it's also a kidnapping movie. I think there's a couple different versions of it. There, um, there was a U, sorry, UK version. I think that was 125 minutes, but the original version was like 141 minutes, which really, I mean, both versions outstay their welcome. I love the book that it's based on. It's very loosely based on Black Friday, which again is a bunch of people sitting around a hideout in all of the tensions that come from being in a closed space with all of these ruffians and thugs and waiting for the next thing to happen for this caper to be successful. I just found that to be pretty ironic that both of these, you know, based on these old hard-boiled books, adapted all these years later, having these international casts, because the cast for And Hope to Die is amazing. It's got Jean-Louis Trintignier, Robert Ryan, Aldo Ray. It's pretty neat, but... Who's the director? Carnet or... René Clement. And was good as the guy who wrote the Shoot the Piano Player book? Yes, David Goodis, yep. Yeah, all the way back to Dark Passage with Humphrey Bogart, call joint, yeah. Where you can just get plastic surgery and look like Bogart. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Could make you look like a bulldog. That's a good trashy movie. That's a great trashy movie, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, this whole idea of the criminals all hold up. And I like in the book, you mentioned the Lionel White book, and I like in there that it's not heroin it's not cocaine it's not anything other than alcohol and just the way that the ringleader basically has like a, a small amount that he gives to the people in his group like trying to keep them a little bit more dry through this there's that moment in the movie where vi and and wally so han and, and moreno are at a bar and she orders scotch he changes the order, but then she quickly changes it back before the waiter walks away. I thought that was kind of a nice thing that she's like pulled one over on him in order to get that drink because she really likes to drink. She really likes to to be out of her head on on substances. Yeah, I was thinking that thing. By the way, you mentioned the book in the book at the beginning. Um, one, I think the chauffeur character is like very sadistic and has beaten up the beating up the teenage girl or whatever that's the nanny or whatever and i was thinking that's where boone's thing comes from yeah it's like they took the brando character and like kind of took the chauffeur and kind of split him into two pieces but then those pieces were kind of there already yeah i think that's gino is the guy's name the same guy who goes in to the girl the little girl little girl in this one well under 18 and masturbates over her bed and wakes her up by oh boy that's that's pretty early in the proceedings man oh boy. i mean i quit pretty quick once i saw how different the movie and the and the book were 
Because the book is like, I like the way the book two started with it already. The kidnapping already done. That was nice. I like that they're just waiting for them to come back. Yeah. Instead of like elaborating on it. I guess you kind of have to in a movie though. I was very surprised when Gino goes in. I can't remember what everybody else is distracted with other things. He goes in and he's caressing her shoulder. And the way that White describes it, it basically he never says that Gino pulls out his dick and starts to masturbate. But just the way that he writes it, you're like, oh, okay, this is what's really going on. And then when he climaxes, he grabs the girl by the shoulder and wakes her up. And then one of the guys, Dent, I think the character's name is, comes in and is like, the fuck are you doing type of thing. And it's like, oh, he collapsed to the ground. I was like, okay, boy, he must have really had a good orgasm. I don't know about you, but I think that is inappropriate. FYI, no, you should not do that. Oh, yeah, I, I would not condone that. You're going to have a lot of disclaimers to make, Mike, here on this this episode. And that was, the book was from 53. I almost said it was his first book, but he had one other before that, Seven Hungry Men. And he always liked to use punctuation, like exclamation marks in his, in his title. So there's Seven Hungry Men with an exclamation mark. Then there's Run, Killer, Run, also with an exclamation mark. <laughs> his, his stuff is great read a few of his books and I really like Lionel White. So that's one reason why when Vaughn requested this movie, I was just like, oh, wow, this is based on a, a Lionel White. I finally get to track down the book and read this one. Cause I've read clean break, AKA the killing. I don't know how many times, man, oh man, what a book. I mean that the, even the structure, that kind of fragmented structure that we have in, in the movie, it's right there in the book. But didn't they say the ending was different though in the book? I think it is. Again, it's been a little while, but I, I'm I'm due for a reread because I like that one so much. But and now knowing a little bit more about some of the adaptations, I didn't realize just how many movies have been made off of his books. It's one of those like looking at IMDb in 1997 versus looking at it today and being like, oh yeah, they've put in a lot more information. So. Like the big caper is one that I really want to see Rafferty. It was a Soviet film that was based on one of his books. I'm like, yeah, please let me, let me see that. And there was one looks wild called the hair and it looks like it's from Finland. And that's the other version of obsession, right? I think, yeah, I think that's like the proper version of it. Cause there, it, there's nothing from obsession that's inside of Godard's film just nothing <laughs> there's no painting your face blue there's none of that stuff is in there so don't go looking for answers in that one but the painting your face blue that does seem brando-y in this movie i can see brando doing that with this wig he could take his wig off and put it in blue and right and godard could have also have made this film he might have made it better it would have been a lot more groovy Though the soundtrack definitely tries to be groovy. I was so surprised that there's not a soundtrack album for this because this is music wall to wall in here. This kind of free jazz expression. And I'm like, oh, okay. No, again, we talked about that intro by Allerman and man, oh man, he had nothing good to say about the music in this one. And so I was, I was kind of tuned into it or the sound in general. He thought all of the voices were overdubbed and he thought that there was, he thought the music was too perky. I didn't think it was that perky. 
it seemed wistful, lost, I thought, for the most part. But um, And also he talked about he hated the use of the ocean that you were talking about. But I like it. I'm with you. I think it's well done. Yeah, I think I like, definitely liked it more than he did. And maybe if you're a Lionel White purist, you know, maybe that's your thing. But yeah, I found a lot of stuff in here to enjoy. And I would, I think I would recommend this to folks. I recommend it to some people, but not to everybody. Because like people that are going to want to see a movie where you have kidnapping and you're involved and it's suspenseful about whether or not that person's going to make it or get free, this movie's not going to satisfy you. No, they have to be ready for something far more experimental and offbeat a curiosity yeah but other yeah movie people are definitely like people who are in the moviness i would definitely recommend it yeah and i think that this should be more than just a footnote for the brando people that there really needs to be more talked about and written about this movie because like i said it's a fascinating failure like there's a couple of other movies that you're like whoa those really never need to be seen again like candy and he wore another wig which he made right before this well, it was Reflections right before Candy was after, maybe. Yeah, I think, actually, they said he had to leave for a week to, to take care of that. But he didn't wear the wig in Candy? It, no, it was a different wig. It was a long-haired, he was a guru in Candy. Oh, that's right, yeah. I had read that he was a guru in it. I watched that movie once. Much better wig. I mean, I'm thinking of, like, some of his earlier films, or even, like, there's this one where he's, like, uh, involved with a Japanese woman. In the military, that thing is awful. He plays a Japanese person, right? Was oh, <laughs> probably. That's right. I think Rita Marina talked about how he was such a good actor that he thought he could do that. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't remember if that. I think that was Tea House of the August Moon, which was made right before Sayonara. It was like his little Japanese period. Yeah, maybe it was just a reason to meet. Asian ladies. She said that he only liked women of color generally. So it was interesting Rita Marino having the blonde hair and then him having the blonde hair. So when they talk about two of the group being brother and sister, I was like, they're not brother and sister, are they? Even though they're both blonde, but thank goodness, no, they weren't. Well, that would have been another complication. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. You you would you wouldn't have been wrong to do it. For that to have entered your mind for a moment in this particular film. Maybe it's a bridge too far for this. Uh... Yeah, I'm not sure why you would give Rita, Rita Moreno that kind of hair, but I mean, she still she did a great job through the hair. Well, I think she was not playing a Latina, so maybe that was partly what went into it. But she could still be not Latina and have her regular hair. But just to emphasize, any student of brando films really shouldn't you know if they haven't seen this i would definitely go out of my way to recommend it i think it also falls in a very interesting period of time in hollywood and the background about the movie is really just fascinating and all the people this period of his he's barely in his 40s here he's you know and he's getting ready for a whole other trajectory here in his career that you know no one could have ever have possibly have seen coming i mean it's just really just an amazing time it's really weird to hear that he was thinking about retiring when he's like you said he was i think he was 43 at this time and he was like oh i'm gonna get back and you know do all this stuff for like black people and i'm like okay that's great obviously he didn't do that because he would go into burn the i think that came out the same year 
the Nightcomers, and then, like you said, his whole different trajectory with the Godfather. Two, what, maybe two, maybe three years later, they're already shooting the Godfather. Look at, think about what he looks like in the night of the following day. Oh, he's a, he's a golden God in this one. Yeah. And like two, maybe three years later, he's playing, you know, Corleone. I mean, what an incredible change. I wonder why he didn't decide to do more staves. That might have been more fulfilling to him. That's a really good point, though. I know with stage, you say what's on those pages, like the idea of improv over and over and over and over and over and over. Improv is not really going to do it. Complete anathema, even though that's his background. That's, you know. Yeah, it's just that he seemed to hate so much the whole Hollywood thing. I don't know. I think he just wanted to change it, and he did. Yeah, he definitely did. Between him and Kazan, right? They changed Hollywood. Hey, Mike, so how many Brando films do you feel like? How many years have you been doing the projection booth now? Twelve. Okay, Film Wax, too, by the way. How many Brando movies do you think have been uh, uh, included in that, those 12 years, Do you would you guess? For me, I can only remember one, which was what? One-Eyed Jacks. Really? Yeah. That's the only other Brando movie you've, you've, you've done in, on the projection booth? Yeah, that's it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, but yeah that's what I, I, I haven't seen. When you do Candy, though, just remember me. All right. We'll do, we'll do. <laughs> uh, sorry, and I Joseph, think- too. I take it back. Oh, thank you. Because okay. we also talked about Superman. Ah, <laughs> yeah, which is great. Oh, and I take it back again because we also talked about Apocalypse Now. So I just, I don't tend to think of those. He gets so. What's the one, the island one, the island of Moreau? Did you do, you do one about that? I did an interview with the director of the documentary about that, that island of dr moreau so we haven't actually talked about that though we are going to be talking about island of lost souls in a few months here and i will totally be talking about island of dr moreau again and especially brando well i think the next one should be guys and dolls which i don't think i've ever seen so really yeah that would be one i would put in the well you're in for a treat again a curiosity but it's a tough it's a tough one it's a tough one yeah, it's weird seeing him try to say it. But it does have Gene Simmons in it, and I love her. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Get the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem on digital today. After years of hiding, the Turtle Brothers set out to gain acceptance as normal teenagers and take on an army of mutants in this hilarious, action-packed adventure. Buy or rent a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem on digital today, and get over 40 minutes of bonus content when you buy on digital. Available at participating retailers. Rated PG from Paramount Pictures. take no lip from nobody. Yeah, that's good stuff. Hit them hard and quick. We ain't afraid of nothing to nobody, are we? <laughs> Three cheers for the Black Legion. Come on, what's the matter with that? Soldier of the Black Legion, you see before you an instrument of death. We give you this half 
as a symbol of our trust. The other half you will receive the day you betray that trust. You've been lying to me. Don't you call me a liar. You're Frank. You did have something to do with all those terrible things. You and those new friends of yours. You shut up about my friends. I won't. Only a bunch of dirty, contemptible cowards would do a thing like that. Why, you... They'll kill me for telling you. Them Black Legion guys don't fool. I'm not fooling either. You're going to quit that gang. I can't get out. Nobody ever lived to get out of the Legion. That's right. We'll be back next week with another listener request, Black Legion. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Joseph and Adam. So, Adam, what's the latest with you, sir? Like I just said before the break, I am still podcasting through the through the ages here. You know, as long as you're up there, I got to I got to continue, Mike. You know, you're an inspiration. Filmwax continues. I think I just did my seven hundred seventy something episode. I mean, you know. And um, I've, what else? I'm doing work with these guys at the Woodstock Film Festival, which is my closer to my new home up here in the Hudson Valley. I moved up here a few years back and also working in radio. But people can find me there at Filmwax Radio on any social media platform. I'm not as active in uh, the Twitter verse anymore for obvious reasons. Yeah. But, I'm on getting film wax on threads. That's my last thing I'm going to do. It's very admirable. I have yet to conquer threads. I have yet to really even crack that app open because I can't figure out why I need to. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. I was being a little bit uh, facetious about it all, but but it's very easy to find film wax. And certainly I would, re- uh, you know, uh, hope people might subscribe. And Joseph, what's happening with you, sir? Everyone go buy my book on Carrie. As under Joseph Eisenberg. Also, I did the commentary track for the latest Shout Factory 4K Blu-ray disc on that. You're speaking about titles with exclamation points. My novel, Marriage Goes to the Movies, is going to hopefully come out soon. And so anyone that wants to know will uh, should at me at Herman Karlovich on Twitter. That's H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N Karlovich on sounds. That's quite a handle, sir. It's from Nabokov. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. (laughs) 